One, certainly one of the more difficult chapters that we will encounter in the entire book and one of the more serious chapters that we will encounter in the entire book. We've noticed that as the previous judgments have been unleashed upon the world, uh, creation has been the target. But as we read chapter 9 and the judgments unleashed on the world, we see that mankind is directly the target. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, Hell on Earth. Hell on Earth. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please? Beginning in verse 1, John says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. But these three plagues, by these three plagues rather, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. 
Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Father, as we think about this week on the calendar, it is a week wherein we celebrate love. Love in our homes, love in our marriages. And Lord, we think of John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Today we look at a very unpleasant flip side of that. To those who reject your love, there's only one thing left. And that's wrath and judgment. And Father, I pray that there would be not even one within the sound of my voice today who would be the recipient of that wrath and judgment. That they would turn away from their sins and turn to Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. That they would experience eternal life and the eternal love of God. The Bible says to those who are in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation and no separation from the love of God to those who are in Christ. I pray God that that would be our experience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think any pastor relishes the thought of preaching on hell. I know of no one who gets up on Monday morning and says, you know what, I can't wait to get busy this morning preparing a message on hell. I guess unless you've had a really bad deacons meeting or something. (laughs) But I don't think anybody likes to think about this subject. And hence, maybe that is one of the reasons hell has fallen out of favor in the modern church. Very few speak of it anymore. And yet the Bible speaks of it often. The Lord Jesus spoke of it often. Jesus spoke of hell as being a place so bad that we are to spare no expense to avoid it. He said on one occasion, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. It would be better to go into eternal life maimed than to be whole and to end up in hell. Or if your right hand offends you, cut it off. It would be better to go into eternal life maimed than to go into hell whole. Some people say, oh, Jesus was just speaking figuratively. Maybe he was, but I'm not so sure. I mean, if hell is as bad as the Bible says that it is, indeed, it would be better to lose an eye or a hand rather than to end up in hell. Folks, hell is described in the Bible as a place of eternal torment. Not not passing, not temporary, not fading, but eternal torment. It's described as a place of burning. It is described as both a place of flames and darkness at the same time. Now that doesn't go together in our minds. But somehow in the providence of God, he's able to accomplish that. 
It's a place of loneliness, a place of isolation from fellowship with God. A place of isolation of everything enjoyable. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told a parable about a rich man who ended up in hell. Now he didn't go to hell because he was rich. He went to hell because we're told in that parable that in his life, he had no room for God or man. And so he lived without God and he died without God. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes in torment and he begged for even one drop of water that would be placed on his tongue to relieve the agony that he was in. And so you can see what the Bible is saying about hell. It is a dreadful, terrible, agonizing, horrible place. Now I mention all of this because in chapter 9 we're going to encounter a glimpse of hell on earth. And you're going to see what I mean by that. It's wonderful how in Scripture God gives us glimpses or snapshots of things before the reality of that happens. For example, what I mean by that is in the Old Testament we read about those lambs that were sacrificed and those lambs that were sacrificed pointed forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would die on the cross for us. In Revelation 20, we're going to read about the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth. God is going to give believers on earth a little foretaste of heaven. And so God gives little snapshots ahead of time, little glimpses of the reality behind that. And that's what we'll see this morning. It's what we see in the first 10 verses of Revelation 9. We see a glimpse ahead of time of how horrible hell is going to be. Now keep in mind since chapter 6 we've been in the tribulation. We've seen the seals being broken. The first seal was the Antichrist. The second seal was war, peace leaving the earth. Then we saw the third and the fourth seals, the famine there. And the fifth seal was death, whether by sword or pestilence or famine. The sixth seal was terror, where all sorts of cataclysmic events take place on the earth and in the heavens and people run and hide and cry for even the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne. Chapter 7 was an interlude, a pause whereby God wanted the 144,000 sealed before the judgments continued. And then the seventh seal was broken and the events of the seventh seal were so horrible that all of heaven was silent for half an hour. The seventh seal consisted of seven trumpets. The first trumpet was blown and a third of the earth was scorched and burned. The second trumpet was blown and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures died and a third of the ships were destroyed. When the third trumpet sounded, a third of the earth's fresh water was poisoned and men died. When the fourth trumpet sounded, a third of the heavenly bodies are affected and a third of daylight is lost. That's what we've seen so far. 
horrific events. But folks, we've not seen anything yet and that's what the angel was trying to tell us at the end of chapter 8. At the end of 8, John says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle or an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe! Uh, to the inhabitants, to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And so beginning here in chapter 9, we have those other trumpets that are about to blow. And how horrible it is. Again, it is a snapshot of hell on earth. Now look with me in verses 1 and 2 again at the scene. John says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. John looks and he sees a star that has fallen, and the tense is is perfect. It, it has fallen. It's already occurred. John is not watching this happen. It's already happened. Now from chapter 8 we saw that a star can refer to a heavenly body. Back in chapter 1 we saw that a star can refer to an intelligent being. Really in the Bible here the word star is being used just like we refer to the word star. We speak of the stars in the heavens above that we see on a dark night. But we also speak of sports stars and Hollywood movie stars. And so we use the word in different ways. Well, it's clear that John is talking about an inanimate object here. It's an intelligent personality. It's an angelic being. Even though it's an unnamed personality, we can be pretty sure it's none other than Satan himself. In Isaiah 14, the Bible says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Now the fall of Satan that's described here in verse 1 is not his original rebellion. He and the angels who were banished with him, who fell with him, were, were banished from heaven. They lost their habitation there. And yet at the same time, believe it or not, the Bible says to some degree Satan still has access into heaven. In Job 1, we see how the sons of God, the angels, were gathered before God one day. And the Bible says Satan was also there among them. And God said, well, where have you come from? And he said, from roaming to and fro in the earth. And he said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan began accusing Job before God. That if God would take his hand off of Job and let Satan touch him, then Job would be somebody who would end up cursing God to his face. Well, not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament also tells us 
that Satan has some kind of access before God. In Revelation 10, uh, excuse me, Revelation 12, 10, the Bible says that Satan has access before God and he goes there day and night and he accuses the brethren. You'll remember how Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And so Satan right now has some type of limited access before the throne of God. But during the tribulation, Satan and his demons will unsuccessfully battle Michael and the holy angels. And as a result of this, they will permanently be cast down to the earth. Revelation 12, 7 talks about this. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now with his theater of operations now restricted to the earth and knowing that his time is short, he's going to seek to work even greater woe to those on the earth. Now I want you to notice here that we're told that the keys to the bottomless pit were given to him. Now wait a minute. Back in chapter 1 we see that none other than Jesus Christ had the keys. But just like in Job 1 where God allows Satan to do what he does to Job, likewise in this scene, Satan is given keys by Christ. In other words, Satan is only allowed to do what God permits. It's important to see that God is sovereign. You might ask, why would he do such a thing? Now we've got to remember an answer to that, that in the tribulation, God is judging an unbelieving world. And so he allows Satan to unleash his hatred and fury on men, and that actually plays into the judgment of God. But Satan is just a pawn in the hands of a holy and sovereign God. Satan may think he has power, but it's just a delegated power. In chapter 20, we're going to see that Satan is bound. But here in verse 2, it says he opened the bottomless pit, literally the pit of the abyss. In Luke 8, 31, the Bible says that the pit of the abyss is the abode of the demons. And as he opens it, we see the smoke and the darkness billowing out. The smoke polluting the sky symbolizes the, the corruption of hell belts forth from the abyss to pollute the world at this time. Well, secondly, I want you to notice with me the supernatural. Look at verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. You see, that had been the previous judgments, but look now how it changes. He says, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now notice verse 3, out of the vast billowing ominous cloud of smoke that darkened the sky, John sees a new terror uh, emerging. 
It's vile demons, and these demons are taking on. He, he sees this, uh, this, this, uh, this, in this apocalyptic language, these, these demons resembling locusts swarming out of the abyss to plague the earth. Now what's clear is they're not literal lo- locusts, but they're described as looking like that. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. The description that begins of them in verse 7 shows that they're not locusts like any locusts that we're acquainted with. But folks, what a fitting description of demons this would be to anybody who was halfway acquainted with anything in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament agricultural economy, one of the most dreaded things was a locust plague. Because you would look on the horizon and see this huge dark cloud of of millions and millions and millions of insects coming in that would even seem to almost darken the sky and they would descend on all the crops and the grass and the trees and they would devour everything and eat everything up before they went on. And so a locust plague would bring total destruction to an area. What a fitting description of, of demonic activity. And the fact that there are an innumerable number here just highlights for us the the extent of the destructive power they have. And so what John is communicating here is all the ugliness of hell being set free. There's pain, there's darkness, and there's suffering. Now again, you might say, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought demons were on the earth right now. And they are. There's those unchained demons. Remember those demons that Jesus met in the Gospels? We see on one occasion in Mark 5 that there was that garrison demoniac that nobody could do anything with. He lived among the tombs. Nobody could do anything with that fella. And Jesus approached him and there was that legion of demons in him. Jesus drove those out and the Bible says the man was clothed and in his right mind. And you read through the Gospels and you see on a number of occasions that Jesus encountered the demons and the demons knew who he was. They said, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? But the Bible also talks about a special class of demons. 2 Peter 2 talks about them, as does the book of Jude. A special class of demons that since way back sometime in the past have been chained in the pit of the obeys. Some writers believe that that class of demons, the chained class, is the most vile and horrific of all. And all of a sudden what John is communicating here in in chapter 9 is that this class of chained bound demons is also released. John Phillips says, picture what the world would be like if you were to open the doors of all the penitentiaries of the earth and set free the world's most vicious and and, and violent criminals, giving them full reign to practice their infamies upon mankind. He goes on to say, something worse than that lies in store for the world. Satan, cast out of heaven, is now permitted to summon to his aid the most diabolical fiends in the abyss to act as his agents in bringing mankind to the footstool 
of the beast. But what we see at work here is the supernatural. And resulting from that, I want you to notice the sorrow that begins in verse 4 and goes all the way up through verse 19. As these demons carry out their activity, again, not against creation, but against man himself. But I want you to notice that they were limited. They're limited in who they can strike. They're limited in how far they may go. And they're limited in how long they may do it. Now look at verse 4. He says, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. But only those uh, people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Folks, that verse is a great testimony to the power of God to protect those who belong to God. Aren't you glad that God knows those who belong to Him? 2 Timothy 2. Paul says God knows those who are His. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is God's seal of ownership among us. And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and God knows those who belong to Him. And that's always been the case in the Bible. As God was unleashing plagues on Egypt, God knew who the Hebrews were and he protected them. And then I think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, There in the book of Daniel, as they were in Babylonian captivity, they went through all those horrific experiences of the lion's den and, and the fiery furnace, and yet God knew them and protected them all through that. It shouldn't surprise us that God knows those who belong to him. And just like the unbelievers will receive the mark of the beast, the children of God are marked by God and known by God. Now I want you to notice in verse 5, they don't kill. They don't kill. They torment. And it's compared here to a scorpion sting. It's said that a scorpion sting is one of the most painful uh, stings that, that uh, a bite or a sting that anybody could ever experience in the animal world. Now, unless you're a child, you're probably not going to die from a scorpion sting. But it's said that as all the venom courses through your body, it hits the nerve endings and, and the body literally feels like it's just on fire from the inside out. And victims have been observed rolling around on the ground and even foaming at the mouth from scorpion sting. And he says, that's what this is going to be like. And the result of all of this, he says, is that men will desire to die, but they can't. They will look for death, but it's going to flee from them. Charles Ryrie says, the effect of this torment is to drive people to suicide, but they'll not be able to die, although they will prefer death to the agony of living. Death will not be possible. You say, how in the world can that be? I think we get a clue of it in the Gospels. We see that young boy that his parents brought him to Jesus' disciples. And they say, we don't know what's going on with him. He just starts flopping around on the ground and, he, and whatever it is that has a hold of him throws him into the water to drown him and just before he drowns it throws him into the fire and, and, and your disciples, we brought him to your disciples but they weren't able to deal with him. 
And the disciples later on said, Jesus, how were you able to deal with that boy and cast that demon out? And, and Jesus said, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. So here was a young man of the Gospels taken over by demonic powers and in the water and in the fire. And, and, and some scholars say evidently that's what's being communicated here that this demonic, this supernatural influence on people during this particular judgment, people are going to want to die but because of this demonic influence they'll be close to death but won't even be able to though they want to. Folks, what's going on here? You say, what in the world is the Bible describing for us here? Again, I think what the Bible is telling us here, it's giving us a little foretaste of hell. What hell's going to be like. And we're given a little snapshot of that in the scripture. That people were tormented so bad they wanted to get out of it. They wanted to die. They even wanted to take their own lives, but they weren't able to. What we're seeing here is what happens when people reject God's mercy. Folks, we see here that hell is not a party. We hear all the time. Sometimes lost people will say, well, I know I'm going to hell and all my friends are going to hell and we're just going to meet down there one day and we're going to have a big old blowout party. It's not going to be a party. It's going to be agony and torment. And people are going to want anything, anything in the world, no limit to be able to get out of this. And it never, never ends. It's not for five months like right here, but it's for all of eternity, never ending. Folks, on the other hand, we see in Revelation 21 how the Bible says God's making all things new for those who love Him and know Him, the saved, and, and that, that He's going to dwell in the midst of His people and His people are going to dwell in His midst and there's going to be no need of the sun because God's going to be our light and there's going to be no uh, sin or suffering or sickness or death. God's making all things new. What a glorious inheritance the saints of God have waiting on them one day. But on the other hand, there's this right here. And it begs the question, are you ready to meet God? As Amos said, prepare to meet your God because one of these days if Jesus tarries, every one of us will die and we will stand before God in judgment and will we go into his presence or will we hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. Bible only speaks of two ways, heaven or hell. Everybody's either saved or lost. No in-between, okay? No purgatory to try to pray somebody out of. You either go in, into the presence of God, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Or you go to hell. And we're being shown here how horrible it's going to be. This is a warning. God in His mercy, God in His grace, God in His love is, is wanting to, has this recorded here for our benefit so that we will open our eyes and ears and we will see what is coming for those who are not right with God. 
A chapter like this ought to be like an evangelistic invitation. God saying, come to me before it's too late. As we continue in chapter 9 with the sounding of the sixth trumpet in verse 13, John hears a voice described as coming from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Now in chapter 8, this altar is the place of the offering of incense with the prayers of the saints. Now here it's related to the judgment of the sixth trumpet. The inference may be that this judgment is partially an answer to the prayers of the persecuted saints on earth. We saw their prayers back in chapter 6 verse 10. They prayed, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now the four horns here seem to indicate that this altar is similar to the design of the altar of incense used in the tabernacle and then in the temple. As John Walford says, the horns signify God's power, His sovereignty, and His judicial government. Now the Old Test- in the Old Testament, this altar was a place of prayer. It was a place of mercy. And now we notice a change though from the place of mercy, judgment falls. Again it reminds us When men reject the love and the mercy of God, there's only one thing left, and that's the judgment of God. Now the voice that John heard here was instructed to loose the four angels, declared to be bound at the great river Euphrates. In other words, these angelic ministers of judgment are under divine control. They cannot act without permission. Now, they're apparently not the four angels that we were introduced to in chapter 7. Those holy angels there that, that were in charge of the four winds, that they were, they were told the 144 had to be marked and sealed first. They were holy angels. But most writers agree that these four right here are not holy angels, but demonic angels. Demons. They point out that nowhere in Scripture are holy angels said to be bound. But these are bound. These are wicked angels designed to to execute the great judgment of the sixth trumpet but prevented from doing so until the proper moment. And so they are prepared for this special hour just like God prepared that whale for Jonah. Their function, we're told, uh, we're specifically told here, is to destroy one-third of the earth's population. And in verse 15 it says, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The definite article is here with hour. In other words, this is highlighting that this judgment comes precisely at the time of God's decision. Not a moment early and not a moment late. Folks, this is one of the most devastating judgments of all. Back in chapter 6 in the fourth seal, we saw that a fourth of the earth's population was killed. Here, an additional third is marked out for slaughter. And that means that these two judgments alone account for half of the world's population, not even counting the other judgments that we've not even gotten to yet. 
Not since the days of Noah has the earth seen, seen this kind of destruction. Now verse 16 enumerates how the judgment's going to be carried out. We see an army here. Now most impressive about this army is the number of the horsemen. 200 million. Now such a huge number has led some interpreters to say no way this can be literal. But as others point out, it sure can be. When you consider the population of the Orient, Years and years and years ago, Mao Zedong claimed that China alone had enough foot soldiers. They had about 250 million foot soldiers. So the number may not be so astronomical after all. But here again is another interpretive challenge. Scholars are divided on this. Is, there a, is this a literal human army? And some say no. They say what we have here is an army of demons just like the first half of chapter 9. They point to verse 17 and say that we have a description of a demon army like the locusts. Others say, no, this is not a demon army. This is a literal human army. And they feel like the trumpet judgments and the vile judgments that will come to overlap. You see, in Revelation 16, we're told that the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates. The river dried up that it might prepare the way for the kings of the east. And some say, aha, that's what we see here. The kings of the east and their armies, massive number, 200 million marching toward the Middle East. And what we have here is setting up. For the battle of Armageddon. Others say this is verse 17 is modern warfare. Is John, how would somebody hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago have described in a vision in apocalyptic literature, how would somebody way back then have described modern instruments of warfare? Maybe that's what John is doing here in verse 17. But folks, whether it's a literal army or a demonic army, I, I, I want you to see here the sorrow that's being caused on the earth among those who do not have God's seal on them. They don't know God and they have rejected every opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. All through history, God's been calling for people to repent and come to Him. I mean, we're really without excuse. You click on the TV or the radio and, and 24-7, you can hear the gospel being preached. We have churches all over the place. So many opportunities to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And even people who are aware of this and have heard the good news... They don't believe and there's a callous on their heart. And they get more hardened and more calloused. 
And despite all of this hell breaking loose on the earth, they still continue to go their way. And that's what I want you to see next. The result of all this hell breaking out on the earth is the sinfulness of mankind. I mean, surely you would think seeing this, people would respond. But look at what verse 20 says. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Wow. All of this that's happened and all of these seals, all of these trumpets being blown, all of these woes being sounded. Man, you would think the lost would be running to Jesus Christ. God, please save me. But what are they doing? They're more hardened and more hardened and more hardened against the message of the love of God in Christ. And they continue in their idolatry. He says here, worshiping. Uh, they're idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. In other words, all the, the worldly materialism, they're just going on in that. And they're worshiping demons. You say, worshiping demons? Yeah, I, look at what goes on today. We're told today occult activity is perhaps at an all-time high. Young people. So many young people are into witchcraft in this Wicca movement. They're, Asheville, North Carolina is one of the, the seats of that kind of activity. All the, the Wicca movement going on up there. A number of years ago, the, they wanted to get together and proclaim a witch's day. Seriously. The local government up there and the pastors and all the churches got together and said, no, they boot kicked it. And didn't allow it. But they wanted to have a witch's day. All this kind of stuff going on today. Occult activity. And then on top of that in verse 21. He talks here about all the kind of stuff they're involved in. He says nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Murder. Points out when the. When, when God's rejected, life is seen as being very, very cheap. goes all the way back to Genesis 4 with Cain. We see it going on today. When people don't follow Christ, when they don't follow Christ, life is cheap. Whether it's the abortionist at work... Or concerns over the aged being denied certain forms of health care or somewhere in between with all the murders in the streets of America. Today even little children being the targets of murder. What do we see all around us? We see that life is cheap. But when the Bible is embraced, then life is seen as being a gift from God, very sacred. Genesis 1 says we're created in the image of God. Red, red, yellow, black, and white, we're precious in His sight. Life is valuable and everybody has dignity and worth because they're made in the image of God, but again, the world rejects that. And so human life is seen as being very cheap and expendable. That's going to be going on here. 
Then he says sorceries. The Greek word is the word from which we get our word pharmaceuticals, drugs, drug abuse rampant. See that even today. Look at all the murders today from the drug cartels and drug trafficking. Immoralities here mentioned here. It's the word pornea. We get our word pornography from this. It refers to sexual activity, sexual sin outside of marriage. We see pornea running rampant today. Huge pornography industry. They claim they make billions and billions of dollars every year right here in America. There's this push today for the legitimacy of homosexuality and lesbianism and same-sex marriages, sexual sins of all sorts running rampant. Just running rampant and unchecked. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying it's just going to increase. Thefts. Again, look at today. And amazingly, while hell is breaking out on the earth in forms of all of these judgments, people are becoming more and more hardened to the gospel. It reminds me of what one writer says about this chapter. He says, as you read chapter 9, is there any place in chapter 9 for the church? He said, yes. He quotes Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.11 Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we persuade men. What do you see in chapter 9? You see terror. You see judgment. You see wrath. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We've got a message to tell. The Bible says in Mark chapter 9 that as Jesus saw the multitudes coming out to him, he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Folks, we've got to ask ourselves today in the church, do we care? about those who don't know Christ. Do we care? We've got loved ones in our circles of influence that if they were to die today or Jesus were to come back for his church uh, today, they would be left behind and they would be subject to all of these judgments. All of this fear and agony and wrath and suffering. Do we care? Are we so caught up in our little circles? Hey, we know God. We got our fire insurance policy. We're going to heaven. And so the rest of the world can just go to hell for all we care. Have we gotten to that point in the modern day church that we just don't care about people anymore and we're satisfied to be about our own little agendas doing our own thing while people die without Jesus Christ? Are we guilty of that? I hope not. Are you praying for the lost? 
Are you sharing your testimony with them? If we were to look right now at your prayer list, would anybody be on your prayer list right now who doesn't know Christ? Are you praying for him daily? God, open his eyes that he might see the glory of God in Christ and be saved. Open his ears. God, wake him up. Wake her up. Is anybody on our prayer list that we're praying for who's lost? Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Maybe this morning you want to say, God, help me to be more active in doing that. Help me to care. Help me to be compassionate about the lost. Help me. I want to pray for them. I want to witness to them. God, I want to be salt and light to them. Here I am, God. Use me. I want to be a missionary to everybody around me who doesn't know Christ. Make your life available to God this morning to do that. And again, if you don't know Christ, I would appeal to you today, come to Him before it's too late. Because the Bible is saying there is coming a day that it is going to be eternally too late. One minute after you die, it's going to be too late to try to negotiate with God then. Come to Christ. Life is a vapor. And we're not even guaranteed the next five minutes. You come forward this morning and I'd love to pray with you about what it means to be a Christian. To know Christ. To be forgiven. To be on your way to heaven. To avoid what he's talking about here. And pray for those in your circles of influence who are not ready, who are not ready. Care for them, love them, and pray for them. Would you stand, please? Hymn of Invitation is going to be on the screens behind me. If God's moved you in some public way to make a decision, you make that today. If you're looking for a church home, or you want to make a profession of faith in Christ, or you just want to pray for the lost, you use this time wisely. This is an invitation time where we make those commitments to God that we believe He would have us.